This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Let me give you some numbers. See if you can guess at what they mean. 300. I'm going to give you four numbers, okay? So you don't have a lot to remember. 300. 391. 576,498. That's one number. 576,498. And 8,468,000. Those are your four numbers. You got them? 300. 391. 576,498 and 8,468,000. Got him? Okay. You know what the first number is? 300? That first number is the number of homicides in Baltimore for the year 2022. That's right. Congratulations, Baltimore. Congratulations, Charm City. You have now recorded your 300th homicide of the year. Took a lot of work to get here. Congratulations to everybody that made this possible. If you're a criminal in Baltimore, if you're a homicidal maniac that is on the streets because of prosecutors like Marilyn Mosby, who herself is under indictment, or because of uh, in, improper policing that's going on at the city, the municipal level, congratulations, you have managed to hit that 300 no, uh, homicide number. Now, I'm being somewhat flippant to call attention to what is a real problem. And uh, you just look at some of these murders. It's easy to look at statistics and say, oh, boy, that's bad. But if you look at some of the people involved in these murders, a father-to-be in Baltimore is among the latest homicide victims as Baltimore has now recorded over 300 murders for the eighth straight year. So what's the number 391? What is that? Very simple. That is the number of murders in New York City so far this year. Now you might say, oh, well, New York City is probably a much more dangerous place than Baltimore is. That is where we come to our third number. 576,498. You know what that is? That is the population of Baltimore. 576,498. I think I have 576,000 people in my building. They're, they're, that's like the population of Staten Island. In a city of 576,000 people for the eighth straight year. There has now been 300 murders. I don't mean to laugh, but you laugh to keep from crying, quite frankly. How does that compare to New York City's population? New York City has a population of 8.4 million. New York has almost 8 million people more than Baltimore and essentially the same amount of murders. So I would love to ask you the question. If you're a Maryland resident or a New Yorker or anybody with an opinion on either of those cities and the crime tactics that are involved there, why? That's always the most important question that I ask anybody. Why? Why is Baltimore, a city that has 576,498 people, why are they essentially almost tied 
with New York City in terms of their murder rate when New York has 8 million more people. What is New York City doing right? What is Baltimore doing wrong? Or you can answer it as a combination, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I suspect, like many things, it's not one answer. It's not one factor. Because, look, I mentioned Marilyn Mosby, the progressive prosecutor in uh, Baltimore, and we have progressive prosecutors in New York. You know, you've got Alvin Bragg in Manhattan. You've got uh, Gonzalez, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn. Even Melinda Katz, who's doing their best to catch up with everybody else in Queens. You have progressive prosecutors all over New York City. And yet we have nowhere near the homicide rate as Baltimore. Some people may say it's gang violence. There's a lot of gangs in Baltimore. That's true. We also have a lot of gangs in New York. Some people may say it's drugs. There's a lot of uh, drugs in Baltimore. That's true. There's a lot of drugs in New York. So why? Why do you think the, the incredible market disparity... What do you attribute that to? And I don't have an answer. This is genuinely a serious question. Uh, John Deedy is a program coordinator for the political science department at the Community College of Baltimore County. And John Deedy spoke to Fox 45 Baltimore about this rather conspicuous milestone. When Mayor Scott ran in 2020, his number one goal was to get it under 300. And it doesn't appear there's light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe this will develop more of a sense of urgency now. I think there can be some hope because there's an expression, a new broom sweeps clean. You know, even criminals know there was an election and Marilyn Mosby isn't around, going to be around anymore. The jump from 2014 to 2015, a lot of people at the time said, that's an anomaly. That was the Freddie Gray riots and things are going to return to normal. And they never did. They never did. That Freddie Gray effect was real, by the way. Uh, Freddie Gray, uh, that's the incident where the gentleman died and the police officers got charged. And there was a feeling among police officers that they might get charged if something bad happens to somebody that they're in the process of arresting or taking into custody. And uh, they call that the Freddie Gray effect because they say it results in less aggressive policing. Heather McDonald wrote a whole book about that. But, uh, yeah, Marilyn Mosby is on the way out. So we will see if that means uh, it's just so interesting to me what John Deedee said there, though, that essentially criminals are watching election results and say, oh, okay, we can go out and commit more crimes now. I wonder if that's true, Um, if if there is some truth to that. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Mark Shaw joining me in about uh, eight minutes. Looking forward to that conversation very much. He is a former criminal defense attorney, a best-selling author. His new book is out today. It's called Fighting for Justice. We're going to follow up on some of the JFK segments that we did last week, but it's going to be going into a lot more than that because in our previous discussions, Mark Shaw has tied the um, the the deaths of Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, and Dorothy Kilgallen, and his new book essentially is about how. The push to chronicle those things over the last four or five years has impacted his life and some of the adventures that he's had as part of this and some of the whistleblowers that have reached out to him. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. But I'd like for you to answer the question. Baltimore has 300 murders. New York has 391. 
Baltimore has 576,498 people. New York has 8,468,000 people. Why Why such a disparity? What's, what's going on in Baltimore? 800-848-9222. A big shout-out, by the way, to our friends at WCBM. A lot of great hosts at, on WCBM. Sean Casey does a terrific job there. Kevin Battle, who I was on with on Sunday, does a terrific job. And I feel pretty good in saying that none of the hosts at WCBM are contributing to that murder rate in Baltimore. I, I'm on pretty good, pretty good standing on that one. Let me begin with Josh in Rockland County. Hello, Josh. Hi, how are you? Great show. Thank you. So I'm going to take a guess because I'm not the biggest expert, but I think that um, Manhattan, New York City, has a lot more rich people, business people, all kinds of groups of people. So Baltimore is probably a poorer city, less diverse. So what happens is there's more. Um, we had a Rudy Giuliani. Even Eric Adams wasn't the most leftist that we elected. So there is some more push for security in New York City versus Baltimore. It, well, that's uh, that is interesting. Well, well, but when you have eight million more people, it's true. New York does have a lot more wealthy people. But there's also a lot more poor people in New York as well than there are in Baltimore. Uh, so and it's an, and Josh, thank you for the call. And thanks for your nice words about the show. It isn't that poverty causes crime, but and this is documented by people much smarter than me, more affluent people avoid conflict. Uh, so in effect, they cede the field to the poor. And both the left and the right agree on that. That's not a controversial thing. So your premise, I think, is right. You're not, go- you're, you, you, you're not going to see somebody that makes seven figures shoving a stranger onto the tracks of the subway. You're not going to see that. But um, in a city that's this big of eight and a half million people, it's got to be more than that. What else do you think it is? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Russ in White Plains. Hello, Russ. Oh, hi, Frank. You know, I think New York City has a lot more anxiety-ridden, neurotic people than Baltimore, from what I've found out about both places. But I think you're wrong. It's not about the numbers. Bragg himself, the DA Alvin Bragg, and I voted for him, himself is, is displayed a lawlessness. You know, with this Jose Alba and now this Tracy McCarter story, I'm sure you're following it. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was let the jury decide, but apparently now Alvin Bragg decides if he made a campaign promise, he's going to let this person walk. And, you know, with Jose Alba, there were a lot of mistakes made with that. uh, Russ, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. I I just don't think you're putting your finger on why the disparity in terms of murders versus population in Baltimore versus New York. Well, I think Baltimore has always had a hardcore – you know, population, and I think you can't do when, numbers when you like say, this. When, when you say a hardcore population, what do you mean? Well, there's a ghetto down there that, you know, is in this, the center city. Now, I know they gentrified, but in New York, it's more related to people turning on each other. We were treated as disease vectors. The person next to you could kill you. And so goodbye to the 99% solidarity. That's what that was all about. All right. So everyone they I- treats everyone else like, a, a, you know. A potential killer. All right. I, I don't think you really answered the question, Russ, but I appreciate you trying. 800-848-9222. Someone who has an answer for everything, Steve in Manhattan. Let us have it, Steve. we got to send Disco Duck down there. And I want to know how he voted for Bragg if he lives in White Plains. I guess that's how they always win these lefties. <laughs> um, 
first of all, Frank, I always come up with guests before I get to meat and potatoes. Ben Maller from Sports Radio Fox, get this guy on as a guest. You'll love him. I'm looking to increase your ratings. Hey, Steve, I'm waiting to get you in studio, man. Yeah, I want I want to get you in studio. We'll do a one on one for an hour. I would love it. An hour, and the, the, the audience would go nuts for me an hour. You'd have to clear everything out. Commercials, That's right. That's the weather, right. That's the news. Right. I'm prepared to do you that. You need me for four hours. We'll touch every yeah, topic Yeah, come in. You come want, in. Let's do it. From Steve. the rascals to Kennedy and everything like that. But with Baltimore, first of all, let me set it up with this. A couple of years ago when one of the radical groups was going around and they were lecturing people with bullhorns, there was a woman she was pretty big with a bullhorn, and she had a lot of women for, and men from Baltimore out in the street in front of a library. And no matter what this woman said, they all agreed with her. They got on the floor. They got on their knees. They bantered. To me, it looked like a scene right out of Jonestown, Guyana, circa like October 1978 or November 78. That's what it looked like. The people in the mind so it's control cultural. of that. Are you saying it's cultural? It, it's no cult like, not cultural. Okay, cult-like. but so why but, do those cults, I, those cults, live in Baltimore and not New York? Well, there's cults all over the place. But the thing is, I want to make the point now. This is the key thing. Now, I live in New York City my whole life, so basically, I'm surrounded by leftists. There's a lot of people who are conservative, but they're so now numbered, they're meaningless when it comes to politics in the city. These people, I'm telling you, the people in New York City, the leftists, want people like. Carl Hasty as assembly guy, right. you know, with the no bail laws. Same thing in Baltimore. They vote for people right. who so release the, the criminals. Why the disparity? Thank you, Steve. Why the disparity? Alan Yonkers, I have Mark Shaw waiting in the wings uh, very quickly. What do you think? Yeah, Frank, you know, Baltimore is a very impoverished city. Many of the people on the uh, who live in Baltimore are on public assistance. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, they've been the capital the city for some time uh, with the homicide title of the most homicides in the nation. Uh, they've been, you know, in competition with Detroit. Uh, you know, you could go to a city like Baltimore and uh, live, buy a house uh, for a cheap price, but there's always that violent, uh, you know, it's a violent city, just like Buffalo. You can go up to Buffalo. So Baltimore is violent home. and it'll always be violent. Yes. No matter Unless what. Hopefully they change it, but it, it doesn't see, you know, right. they've had this title for some time. So, it, but I mean, it really seems to have gone up about eight years ago. There's nothing, yes. I mean, there's nothing they could do to make things go back to where they were prior to 2014? I guess, you know, I, I think they'd have to get politicians in there who are more, uh, you know, more uh, pro-law enforcement. Right. Okay, Al, but it seems like New York has elected a lot of the same people, and yet we're not having a lot of the same problems. Al, thank you for the call. Um, we're going to talk with Mark Shaw in a moment. Uh, he's got a brand new book out today, Fighting for Justice. We'll hear all about it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight presents. This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Last week was the 59th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And for nearly six decades, people have wondered what really happened. And in the 60s, one of the most prominent 
media personalities in America, in radio, on television, and in print, Dorothy Kilgallen, did a fair amount of investigating what really happened. Did she get too close to the truth? And did her investigations lead to her own demise? Well, we're just a couple of weeks away from another key deadline in the government having to reveal maybe, anyway, a whole bunch of key documents related to the Kennedy assassination. What's all this secrecy about? And could the murder of John F. Kennedy, the murder of Dorothy Kilgallen, and the murder of an icon like Marilyn Monroe all be linked? Well, Mark Shaw, who is a best-selling author and a former criminal defense attorney in his own right, has made a pretty compelling case in several books, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, collateral damage and several others that Dorothy Kilgallen might have been on the right track. And over the last few years, his story, the story of investigating and exposing the cover-ups about the JFK assassination and the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen is a fascinating one. And that is the story that is told in large part in Fighting for Justice. Mark, as always, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, thank you, Frank. I appreciate it very much. Mark, I think everybody knows John F. Kennedy died, and I think everybody knows that uh, Marilyn Monroe passed away. Let's talk about your investigation into what happened. Uh, John F. Kennedy is killed in 1963. Dorothy Kilgallen is killed in, or Dorothy Kilgallen dies in 1965. Marilyn Monroe uh, dies in 1962. That is the order that you investigated these three deaths, even though that's not chronological order. Why, even though Monroe died third, uh, excuse me, even though she died first, did you investigate her third? Well, you know, I've always done things in my life kind of ass backwards. <laughs> so this is no uh, surprise to a lot of uh, people. You know, this this has been an amazing journey. You know, the, the uh, subtitle in Fighting for Justice that's released today calls it an improbable journey. Uh, some people would call it an impossible journey or a lot of other terms because I never had any idea that I would ever get involved in, in the uh, deaths of these three individuals in those turbul- turbulent years there in the early 60s. And um, the way that I that I did this uh, is, is kind of – I think it's fascinating and, and, and inspiring to some people because I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I fell into it. Uh, I knew Melvin Belli, who was Jack Ruby's attorney. Uh, when uh, Jack Ruby uh, shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And in that book, I found out about Belli's involvement with the, the mob and stuff like that. And the second book had to do with the 60 election being fixed and Belli being, you know, part of the whole situation there and Joe Kennedy then double-crossing the mafia. And, and I put it in the book, that you, uh, the one book that, you know, the, the motive for killing a JFK was to make Bobby powerless so he'd leave those mobsters alone. And so that made a lot of sense to people. I was going to quit then. But then I found the Ruby trial transcripts, and that was in the book Denial of Justice. I was going to quit then. But people kept asking, is there a connection between the life and times and deaths of JFK, Marilyn, and Dorothy? And that was collateral damage. So I was going to quit again. Uh, but the reason that I that I did that is that I never thought there was any connection between the deaths of Marilyn and, and Dorothy. So I didn't think about uh, investigating it until I'd already looked into the JFK assassination and, and Dorothy's story. So that's, that was the reasoning, and it was amazing to me uh, when I found a, a photograph of, of Dorothy with Marilyn, and then I found a 
column she had wrote just before, written just before Marilyn died, supposedly of a suicide, and that launched me into those books. And then, as you're going to hear, a phone call that I got uh, in February changed everything about everything that I knew about all three of these uh, these icons in some ways. And that's uh, responsible now for white, for fighting for justice. So in this book, Fighting for Justice, the improbable journey uh, to exposing cover-ups about the JFK assassination and the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen, like in the previous work that you've done on this subject, mm-hmm. the Kennedys don't exactly come across as looking the best. And uh, they, they actually might have played a pivotal role in Marilyn Monroe's death. Was Dorothy Kilgallen aware of that, in your view? Did her research suggest that? You know, uh, what, it, what, what is suggested there, it's a really good question, uh, Frank. I haven't been asked that much. Uh, the Kennedys are at the, in the middle of all of this, and Dorothy's in the middle of all of this. They're the the common denominator with everything that happened to all three of them. There's no question about that. I'm not very nice to the Kennedys, again, in the new book. Uh, I found a, a book that was written in 1973 about the Kennedy men's neuroses and and found out that JFK was actually married before he ever married uh, uh, Jackie and some things about them, and especially about Joe Kennedy. Uh, there were some bad parts of the Kennedys. They certainly did some good things, but some bad parts. And, and Dorothy has you know been in the middle of all of that as well. But uh, as far as whether uh, Dorothy knew about the whole situation with the Kennedys and Marilyn and so on and so forth. You have to remember, uh, unlike today, uh, back then, uh, there was kind of a, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, kind of a, a, a deal with a lot of the columnists and newspaper They wouldn't print the dirt. Yeah, they didn't get into that, especially with public figures, especially the presence of the United States. So, uh, you know, I've uncovered even more evidence that Dorothy was such a close friend of JFK's yes. Uh, he had been to her home for, for playing charades and parties and things, and she had taken her young son to the White House to meet him, and he made a big fuss over that. And so she was very close to him uh, when he died, uh, obviously, and she, she saw Jack Ruby shoot Larry Har- Lee Harvey Oswald. She knew something was wrong, and she started investigating his death. But uh, I, I've never been able to find anything she wrote uh, with with any any mm-hmm. dirt to it about uh, about either John Kennedy or for that matter Robert Kennedy. So the gist of Dorothy Kilgallen's thesis about the Kennedy assassination, which mm-hmm. you've largely adopted and built upon, is that the mob killed John F. Kennedy, and others have said this as well as retribution for uh, Robert F. Kennedy's uh, lack of appreciation, to put it mildly, for their pivotal role in getting John F. Kennedy elected in 1960. One. Theory Theory that keeps popping up from time to time is the Castro theory that uh, this was blowback for the frequent assassination attempts that the United States and the CIA had made on Fidel Castro. Tell me why you dismiss that. Well, because Dorothy did. You know, she's the only one at the Ruby trial in the front row listening to the testimony. She's the only one that interviews Jack Ruby. Uh, whatever he tells her, she goes to New Orleans where Carlos Marcello is. Uh, I heard you say the mob, so I'm very careful not to generalize that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's no question in my mind using common sense. All you have to know is that J- uh, the, uh, Joe Kennedy fixed the 60 election uh, by by asking uh, through Frank Sinatra to have Marcello and Giancana and Traficante and all those guys help them win uh, uh, Illinois and West Virginia so they could win the election, and, and they do. And then Joe turns around and double-crosses them by 
having JFK appoint to Bobby Attorney General, and Bobby Kennedy, first thing he does is go after Marcello. So if you follow that thread on through, you see that Marcello had the biggest uh, reason, the strongest motive to have killed to have orchestrated the, uh, the death of JFK, and you can take that on through then his empire in New Orleans, a billion-dollar empire, stretched on to Dallas. And there's little things that, that mean a lot, like w with when Dorothy did her investigation, for instance, who was the first person to have visited Jack Ruby in jail? Well, it was a guy named Joe Campisi and his friend Savello. And uh, who did they work for? They worked for uh, Carlos Marcello. And I believe they told Ruby, listen, we're going to get you a big-time lawyer. And they got Belli, who came in and then did what he was supposed to do, which was shut uh, Jack Ruby's mouth, wouldn't let him testify, used this insanity defense and all that. And so they button up all the holes. Oswald is dead. Ruby's been convicted. And, you know, there's never going to be any other investigation. And, and that will now tail end into what I found out about the Warren Commission and the corruption there. Uh, through this uh, phone call in February from a whistleblower who was right there with one of the members uh, when they convened the uh, Warren Commission. Well, we definitely want people to read the book, and I don't want you to spoil too much of it, but uh, you have to share that with the audience. What did you learn about the Warren Commission? Well, you know, there was always one piece missing, and I hadn't thought about this till the other day. One piece missing in uh, why I was able to show that Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, they had to silence her in 1965. I knew that uh, those enemies, like Marcello or J. Edgar Hoover or whatever, uh, had reason to uh, be scared of Dorothy. She was writing a book for Random House, a tell-all book about the assassination and everything. And uh, I knew that they would be worried about her being at the, the Ruby trial. She was able then to get uh, Jack Ruby's testimony before the Warren Commission, and that'll, uh, that'll connect in with the Warren Commission material as well. So she had all this information. She was putting in a book. I think she was going to expose Marcello and, and, as, the, uh, as the one who orchestrated mm. the death of JFK, and Hoover is the one who covered it up. So they're scared to death of her. But here's what happened. Uh, in, in February, uh, a gentleman uh, sent me an email and said he had just watched a presentation of mine at a Dallas, uh, near Dallas airport, Allen Library, uh, near Dallas in the Allen Library in Allen, uh, Texas. And uh, he, he, he watched it, and, and there's, uh, I think, seven and a half million views of my presentations and interviews up there. He happened to pick that one that had gone viral. And he wrote me and said, Mr. Shaw, I, I'd like to talk to you because I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And as you can imagine, Frank, uh, my ears perked up sure. because there aren't that many people around who remember her. So I immediately phone, uh, called uh, this gentleman named Morris Wolf, a very distinguished man, uh, Yale lawyer, uh, worked for Bobby Kennedy when he was in the uh, attorney general's office. Uh, the Kennedy brothers trusted him so much that they used him to um, – exchange messages between the two Kennedy brothers in the Justice Department and the White House because they didn't they, they were worried that J. Edgar Hoover was tapping their phones. So I found him right away to be very credible and then he told me that he knew Dorothy Kilgallen, but first he said, I have to tell you, Bobby Kennedy then recommended me to one of the Warren Commission members and I became his legislative assistant. And I was right there, Mr. Shaw, when uh, he went to those hearings. I rode with him in his Saab, uh, small little Saab automobile. He was a big guy. He almost couldn't fit in. We went to those hearings, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I was able, in fact, to, to sit in on some of the hearings because, actually, um, you know, I had to wait on him and so on and so forth. And then he starts just telling me. I'm writing as fast as I can, Frank, as you can imagine, and he tells me, 
that that uh, this uh, commission member, who we'll, we'll uh, identify in a little bit, he said they already know, the commission members, about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Earl Warren, the chief justice, keep pushing the Oswald alone, alone conclusion. Our new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, wants to cover up and move on. They, the commission members, say that the Oswald conclusion is going to be good for God and country, but there is internal corruption, and I don't know why. So, as you can imagine, I wrote that down as quickly as I could. I talked to him a couple more times, and finally I, I asked the question I wanted to. How did you know Dorothy Kilgallen? He said, well, he, she was a friend of Ken, Senator Cooper's. I used to go to what he called soirees, uh, parties, at Senator Cooper's home at 29th and N Street uh, in Georgetown. And uh, Jackie Kennedy and Jack Kennedy would come at times uh, because they were close friends with the, with the Coopers. But I used to sit right at the dinner table, uh, and I picture this in my mind. It's, it's so visual. Sit next to Dorothy Kilgallen. And he said, you know, she was a bright light bulb, and she was an investi investigative reporter even when she was having dinner trying to get information uh, out of me uh, about, uh, about the senator. And I said, is that right? And he said, yes. And he said, yes, this just opens up a lot of questions for me, Mr. Wolf. I said, I have to ask you this. You know, Dorothy ended up with the Warren Commission uh, Jack Ruby testimony, and she printed it on the front page of the Journal American, her newspaper. You know, she was syndicated to 200 mm -hmm. newspapers across the country and everything. And I said, you know, we've never known what happened as to how she would have gotten that because she was grilled by some of JFK's agents. She wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't answer questions. Uh, sometimes she just refused to, to even acknowledge the questions or answered no or whatever and didn't give any clues as to what happened. And I said, is it possible that Senator Cooper would be the one who would have given her that information since he was so dis uh, disgusted with what was going on at the Warren Commission? And the words I'll never forget, he said, it's very likely, because he was a man who had a lot of integrity, just like Dorothy was a woman who had a lot of integrity, and he couldn't pick, put up with misinformation and that kind of thing. And so that, that just was, was such, so startling to me that I had been able to bring a new piece of the information together. And then as we talked, I got the feeling that also this corruption that went on the, at the Warren Commission uh, that Mr. Wolf felt like it was very likely that that information had been passed on to, to Dorothy as well. So now you know, and I did, that she, she has so much information that is deadly to people like all of the members of the Warren Commission, including Earl Warren and, and then JFK, or, uh, uh, LBJ and, uh, and uh, Hoover and the Kennedy brothers who try to block the investigation because uh, LBJ and Hoover stack the deck with only Oswald alone type believers, uh, and, and that is proven in the new book, uh, Collateral Damage. So it, it really, um, you know, as I say, uh, gave me kind of what I thought was a final piece of the puzzle because you can take it all the way through from the 60 election, all the way through Marcello, all the way through JFK dying, then to the, the Warren Commission, and then here's Dorothy in November of 1965 with all of this. Uh, information and going to write a book about it. And as you can imagine, they couldn't let that happen. And and how do we know she was right about all this? They killed her. <laughs> you, you said a great deal there. And believe it or not, we're not even scratching the surface of the incredible story that Mark Shaw tells in his book, Fighting for Justice. Not only is it a great examination of 
at least three deaths because you also deal a little bit with the uh, death of uh, Robert F. Kennedy as well. Mm -hmm. But it's also sort of a great mini memoir covering the last few years of your life and how incredible the uh, the result of the reporter who knew too much has been for your life and Mm -hmm. how much uh, that you've changed. A couple of things. And uh, I could talk with you all day and uh, I'd love to do something like a podcast with you on a regular basis covering some of these issues. But uh, you uh, the other day on the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I played some audio of Gary Hart, who was a senator who was on the congressional committee that investigated the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And he believed that it was a conspiracy. You actually allude to the woman who ended his presidential campaign in your book, uh, Donna Rice. We all remember Donna Rice and the good ship monkey yeah. business. What in the world does uh, why did Donna Rice pop in? to your head as you were researching some of this stuff? Well, because I knew her when I, you know, I've had a lot of careers, as you may know. I was a criminal defense, well, almost flunked out of Purdue and then got my degree, almost didn't do too well in law school, but then I was a pretty prominent criminal defense lawyer and then a network legal analyst for, for the Tyson case and OJ and, and Kobe Bryant and all of that. But uh, in, in the midst of all of that, I started getting my, I got my license to practice law out in California and I became an attorney in uh, in uh, Beverly Hills. And one day I got a call because I was kind of known as someone who liked to defend women's rights and so on and so forth. And she said it was Donna Rice. And I said, oh, my gosh. She said, well, yes, I need to talk to you. And we sat at a small cafe there. And uh, she just poured her heart out. Uh, Her reputation had been ruined because of the alleged affair with Gary Hart. You know, and so many people were hated her because they loved Gary Hart and they wanted him to become president. I don't want to forget to tell you, you should ask Matt Whining, who uh, works for a mutual friend of ours, John Casamadaris. I always say his name wrong. Yeah, Casamatidis, uh, believe it or not. I, I know his name better than I know my own. Yeah, there you go. But Matt uh, worked for Gary Hart, and I, I never knew that. Oh, I didn't know that either, actually. I will ask yeah, him. And about he that. was actually there on the day that the uh, alleged affair took place in, in that uh, boat or uh, yacht or whatever it was. So that was fascinating to me. But that kind of fit in with everything because, you know, uh, you, you just you just can't imagine how these kind of things come together. Uh, people call it crowdsourcing, which means that I throw out my material in my books and presentations and things, and I guarantee you, perhaps from one of your listeners tonight, they'll get in touch with me with a tip or whatever it was, or watch a presentation or something like that. So I would owe it all to those people who have come forward with that, but especially to Dorothy, because uh, when you're not smart enough to do uh, as well as other people can, you want to find somebody who's who's smarter than you. And Dorothy is the most credible investigator of the JFK assassination uh, in history. And uh, any book or anything else that's written about the assassination without her research in it, uh, it doesn't make any sense. So uh, I've had Dorothy on my side since the beginning. The um, and again, we're talking with Mark Shaw, best-selling author of *The Reporter Who Knew Too Much*. He's written a number of books. The latest out today: *Fighting for Justice: The Improbable Journey to Exposing Cover-Ups About the JFK Assassination and the Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen*. Uh, you mentioned how a lot of your involvement in investigating these cases began with Marvin Belli. You say in the book that Marvin Belli was not surprised when Jack Ruby died suddenly. What did he say about his lack of surprise in terms of Jack Ruby's death? 
Well, it's interesting how I find these people, and uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased then that they trust me with their information, just like Morris Wolf did. Uh, these are my contributions to history. I put them in the books. People can make up their own mind what they think and all that. But uh, I knew Mr. Belli in the 1980s. I practiced law with him in San Francisco. Uh, I wrote a biography of him, uh, and I learned more about his uh, affiliation with the mafia. His main client was Mickey Cohen, a Los Angeles gangster. So he loved the mafia, as one of his associates said, and they loved him. He used to go to Las Vegas and hang out with them. He was kind of a hanger-on to those people. And so uh, I was able to track down one of his best friends. And the best friend told me a couple things, but one of them, which hit me hard, because it basically uh, proves that Belli knew about the assassination before it took place, because a waiter walked up to them having a dinner at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco and said, you, you, wait a minute, you guys, you'll never believe it. A guy named Jack Ruby just shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And this man swear that Belli said, well, uh, now I'll have to defend Ruby instead of Oswald. Well, the only way that he would be able to say that is he, if he was kind of on call. And, and, and that then stretches on to that Joe Campisi being the first visitor to Jack Ruby in jail. Uh, he's Marcello's underling, and so he goes to, to see Jack Ruby, and what does he say? I'm going to get you a great lawyer. And that great lawyer was Melvin Belli, who sold him down the river by using this insanity defense and, and um, uh, you know, the whole situation there with uh, uh, not letting him testify. Now you take that and you look at one of the other ingredients in what uh, Morris Wolf was told uh, by this uh, senator, John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. That's his name, and people will learn about him in the book. But in, in the uh, material uh, that I have um, – the, uh, John Sherman Cooper said uh, they know about they know about Oswald and uh, being involved with organized crime, and they don't want to do anything about it. Well, just think right there is such a clue. Uh, they should have done something uh, with that link because that link with Jack Ruby would have would have taken them uh, because of what Dorothy Kilgallen knew and all that right back to Marcello. You see, Frank, one of the things that drives me crazy about all this is the corruption and everything. Right. But because this Oswald alone theory, this conclusion came out, everything stopped. It shouldn't have. They never investigated Marcello. They never investigated J. Edgar Hoover covering all this up. Um, you know, they got away with all of that. And, and that's, the, that's the crime of Senator Cooper and all of those on the commission. Cooper at one point tried to resign. He wanted it. He and another senator won a dissent in the final report, saying they didn't believe in the uh, Oswald, the uh, silver bullet theory, uh, and the Oswald alone situation. They were guaranteed that would be in the final report. It wasn't. So all of this, uh, you know, meshes together. But as as, a, as one person said to me today, all of this was evil. These men. Uh, I have a, a tape recordings, auto tape recordings of of LBJ and Hoover setting up. The uh, the commission members with only ones who they know are going to vote for Oswald mm. alone. And of most interest in there, by the way, there is a situation where they go ahead and they talk about that there's a dirty columnist on the East Coast who might cause them some problems. Well, we know who they were alluding <laughs> wow. to there. And you have the transcript of those uh, Johnson Hoover conversations in the book. It's fascinating to read. Uh, again, I could talk with you all day, and hopefully we sure. can continue this conversation soon. Two final areas that I want to ask you about before we uh, run out of time. One, 
has to do with something you cover in the book regarding Dorothy Gilgallen's interest in UFOs. Uh, you write that, Dorothy, I'm interested in UFOs. We talk about them a lot on uh, on this program. Yeah, what exactly was Dorothy's interest, and how did that register on the radar screen of the CIA? Well, you know, they were suspicious of Dorothy all the way back to 1954. I found CIA documents looking into what she'd said on her radio program. Hoover was looking into a, a, a science club that she had at uh, P.J. Clark's with a bunch of people. I mean, they were always on top of that. And then, you know, I have this CIA document in the, in the uh, well, it was in Collateral Damage and, and the other books, but now in this book. And it talks about her interest in UFOs, Marilyn Monroe's interest in UFOs, and Dorothy and, and JFK's interest in UFOs. Dorothy was interested. She went to a UFO convention in London at one point, and I have that uh, column that she wrote about that as well. In the new book also, I have a photograph. It's a little fuzzy, but it's a photograph of Dorothy in New Mexico at the site where the UFOs have been found and so on and so forth, area, whatever it's called. And also um, a postcard that she sent to one of her friends confirming that she was there. So uh, for whatever reason, that was something that uh, mystified her. But there's no, no, there's no question that, uh, you know, uh, she, she would have kept kind of looking into all of that and, and, and seeing what happened for sure. Finally, you mentioned almost casually uh, something in our early part of our conversation that I think is going to take a lot of our listeners by surprise. The fact that John F. Kennedy had a wife prior to Jackie. Who exactly was that and when was that marriage? Well, you know what's interesting here? People, people are going to say, hey, you know, we've always known the Warren Commission was corruption. Well, that was just speculation. Now we have an eyewitness there, a whistleblower right there at the time. Well, the whole thing with Jack Ruby's trial, you know, and what went on there, we, we can speculate. Well, Dorothy was there. I wasn't there. These other so-called experts weren't there and all of that kind of thing. And so, you know, I like to be able to uh, give uh, the reader as much information as I possibly can so they can make up their own mind as to what happened. And, uh, you know, t- t- give me your question again. I want to make sure that I answer it correctly. My, my question ahead. was, who was John F. Kennedy's first wife, and when oh, yeah. was he married to yeah. this person? Well, he was he, in, 19, in 1947. I don't have the woman's name in front of me here, uh, but it's in the book. Uh, he was in Palm Beach, which makes sense. The Kennedys had a big uh, home down there on the ocean. And he met this beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, they were dating. And he was, uh, you know, being a womanizer, uh, as, as all the Kennedys were, including their father. Uh, he wanted to uh, have some sexual relations with her. But this woman had some morals. And she said, no, I won't do it unless you marry me. And I have the documents to prove it. Uh, one's an FBI document, another local document from down there. Uh, they went to the courthouse in Palm Beach, and they got married. And, of course, when Joe Kennedy found out, he went crazy. And Joe Kennedy was uh, better at one thing than anything else he did. He could cover up anything. And so apparently he and cohorts went down to the Palm Beach um, courthouse and uh, and got this document. Uh, they got these documents that showed they were married and destroyed them. Well, somehow or another, and I, I can look here and see if I have the file, just a second, somebody, uh, you know, either got a copy of that or they decided somehow or another that they could put it all together, and they did, and uh, it, they came up with this woman's name, 
and who she was involved with. And what's really – oh, here it is. Her name was um, – Blauvelet, B-L-A-U-V-E-L-T. And in the, in the document it says, copies of the materials are attached here to, and we noted that in the left-hand column of page 884, there is listed a member of the family, 11th generation, Dury Kerr Malcolm, pointed out that the statement is contained certain that the third husband of Dury was John F. Kennedy, son of Joseph Kennedy, the one-time ambassador to England. So that it was documented, and he was never divorced. And so when he married Jackie, basically he was a bigamist, which made the children illegitimate. And and it's just in some ways it's indicative of the, the way the Kennedys lived. You know, with in the in the Kennedy neurosis, they talk about how they treated the women in that family. We know about with Jackie, but Rose, the mother, and every one of the Kennedy women, how terrible they were treated, and and exposed to them bringing girlfriends or mistresses or whatever to the home and things like that. So uh, it's more than just the fact that, that he was a bigamist and, and, and all of that. It's, it's the moral value that was lacking mm. in, in the whole Kennedy uh, men family. It's a fascinating story. Mark Shaw, it's always a treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to our next conversation very much. It's a deal. Thanks, Frank. And I apologize for going on and on. As you can oh, see, no, I get please. very excited I love about it. this. I'd love it. I'd love it. I'll <laughs> sit back and listen all day. Uh, we've been talking with Mark Shaw. His new book, Out Today, check it out, Fighting for Justice. It's available wherever books are available. Uh, the Improbable Journey to Exposing Cover-Ups about the John F. Kennedy assassination and the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen. And believe it or not, I know we covered a lot of ground just now. We did not even scratch the surface. There's a lot of great stuff in this book that you have to check out. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.